Now, novels, movies, and binge-worthy 18th-century period drama series with hot leads and breaches are all great. Okay, really great. In fact, they occupy much of my free time, leaving me with just a few hours here and there for that thing we used to spend a lot of time on called a social life. But a good short story can take you on a truly wild ride in a fraction of the time. I'm Meg Wallitzer. On this episode of Selected Shorts, we unveil our new collection of short stories, Small Odysseys, with actors Michael Shannon and Javier Munoz. Stay tuned. You're listening to Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. Fans who have listened to Selected Shorts for decades know how dedicated we are to short stories. And after 35 plus years of performances, we've taken our devotion to a new level. That is, for the first time, we helped usher an entire book of new stories into existence all at once. We commissioned 35 favorite writers to create new stories for our very first anthology titled, what else, Small Odysseys. When the collection was published, shout out to Algonquin Books, we held a day-long celebration of selected shorts at our home theater, Symphony Space. During this unprecedented 12-hour show, actors of stage and screen performed each of the 35 new stories. It was an unforgettable day of literature and creativity. But don't take our word for it. Here's Joan Allen, a wonderful actor known for films including Room and Nixon, talking about her experience on that day. It makes me feel very happy to see people together again, that Symphony Space is able to open its doors and to do this wonderful program for 12 hours free, just letting anybody who wants to come just pop in, sit and stay. It's, it's, it's very much a part of the, the spirit that Symphony Space has always been. And so it's very warm and cozy to me to be here and be part of it. That was Joan Allen speaking backstage at Symphony Space. In this hour, we begin to share the stories from Small Odysseys. The authors were free to choose their own subject matter, yet it was interesting to see common themes emerge from the stories that came back to us. Is there, in fact, a collective unconscious, like Carl Jung said, you know, one giant shared ancestral brain? I once taught a creative writing workshop, and on the first day, two people who had never met both brought in short stories in which there was a character named Leo who played the game Connect Four. Interesting, right? Though maybe, upon reflection all these years later, not that interesting. In this hour, we bring you two of the stories from the collection, both of which happen to be about fathers and creativity. In one, a hapless father contemplates marriage while trying to help with his kid's science project. And in the other, a dad rules his own little kingdom while caring for a forlorn son. Let's start with a piece by Susan Parabo. She's the author of novels including The Fall of Lisa Bello and the collection Why They Run the Way They Do. We've enjoyed her clever and conversational tales at our live shows, so we were glad to include this bittersweet story about marriage and science projects in our Small Odysseys collection. Parabo and our reader Michael Shannon perfectly capture parents' zero-hour anxiety and over-involvement. But then the story tries its own ingenious experiment, definitively proving that something kind of sweet and familiar and funny can also be moving and profound. Performing it, an actor known for intense roles in films such as Revolutionary Road and Take Shelter. Here's Michael Shannon with Susan Parabo's The Project. The 
The project. One, question. You should see my wife with the ruler. My God, the precision as she bends over the flat stovetop, the best light, the incandescent dome, dispensing her perfect, nearly invisible lines with the freshly sharpened pencil. I am careless in all things, and it's rarely more apparent than it is in this familiar endeavor. The kids in bed, the trifold board still nearly a blank canvas, the lies told to each other about how it's mostly our daughter's work, how we're just doing the brainless part, the presentation, measuring, cutting, gluing, assembling her findings in a way that approximates how an above-average fifth grader might do things. <laughs> a fifth grader that, fried from the particular exhaustion of weeks of procrastination and a ribbon on the line, was sent to bed in tears at midnight, leaving her parents to finish up her science project. I am useless. I might as well be in bed myself because there's no pretending I have a meaningful role in this. I prepare and deliver a cup of coffee and then step away. I ask from a safe distance, is there anything I can do? There is not anything I can do. By now you are probably wondering, can you identify a dog by its nose print? We, my wife and I, we have some answers for you. We used to have answers to all sorts of questions. Questions like, do you have to invite racist aunts and uncles to your wedding? And could we turn the dining room into an office? And will he really be dumber if we switch from breast to bottle now? And how much more work is three kids than two? And what next? And what next? And what next? These kinds of questions the science teachers say are attention grabbers. Seize your audience with a question, something they didn't know they didn't know, then hit them with the hypothesis. Two, hypothesis. The scissors, too. You should see her with the scissors. The meticulous agility, the rapid-fire snips with which she dispatches every unnecessary millimeter of paper. The way she wields those scissors, she should be able to defend us from anything. With my forearm, I sweep the scraps from the kitchen table into the wastebasket, removing the carnage in her wake. This is the final required science fair project by the third and final child. Never again will we press and smooth the impossibly fragile paper letters to the title board. H-Y-P-O-T-H. Oh, and we had this down, hypothesizing. 19 years ago, we could have filled the whole left tri of the trifold board with educated guesses about what was next bottle sterilizers and fingers white with diaper cream and gates that opened with a pedal. T-ball, go fish, 
Roof racks, water shoes, scholastic book fairs, tears, tantrums, six flags, iPads, frosty soccer fields, Pop-Tarts and pizza rolls, wet towels on bedroom floors, doors opened and closed a thousand, 10,000, a hundred thousand times. Those were the things we anticipated, the no-brainers. And those were the things we did. But other things we were off about. Our hypothesizing was naive, insufficient. Our imaginations failed us. Cars that blew through red lights, we missed that one. Machines that breathed, not on our list. Lionel Messi, from his poster over our older son's bed, gazing down on a web of tubes and wires, bills passed across a kitchen table, glanced at, passed back. Parents awake in beds, listening for trouble. Children awake in bed, listening for parents. Dogs in the hall, their noses always twitching, no longer knowing morning from night. We didn't guess any of those. Can you identify a dog by its nose print? Is every canine nose as unique as a fingerprint? Its thin lines, its deep grooves, the measurements and shape of its nostrils. Can a dog owner, having studied his or her dog's nose, identify it from a dog nose lineup? Our daughter, her choice of project months ago, driven entirely by the opportunity to spend more time with dogs and less time with people, hopes aloft, hypothesized, yes. Three, research. There are 13 dogs in the study. Our two dogs, plus friends' dogs, plus neighbors' dogs, plus one dog my daughter and I met at the park with its newly married owners. Can I take a picture of your dog's nose? My daughter had asked them. Who could refuse? Down on her knees, her phone an inch from this lab mix's face, I'd suddenly become aware of my own recklessness. I knew nothing of this dog's temperament. These strangers' dog could take a finger clean off my child before anyone had a chance to react. I was always a moment too late with this kind of awareness. In situations large and small, another illustration of my ineptitude. But the dog was cooperative, curious, sniffed her phone, smudged the screen, my daughter laughed, wiped the screen with her shirt, and scooted back a few inches so the nose wouldn't be blurry in the photo. We walked away unscathed. Tragedy averted. Every day without a tragedy was tragedy averted. Whose dog is this, my wife says now, placing each picture with excruciating care onto the board in preparation for gluing. Each dog is represented by two photos, a headshot and a close-up of the nose. A woman from work, I say. Hmm, he's cute, she says. Sometimes at night, when our oldest son makes a certain kind of sound, I follow her into his room, try to help. She knows what each sound means. Just like 
when they were infants. She tends to him as I stand in the doorway. In the dark, I hardly recognize her. She could be any woman, any nurse, any caregiver. Anything I can do, I always ask. There is not anything I can do. In the overnight hours, time exists loosely. Years, even decades, huddle into one another. Ten minutes ago, babies were gazing curiously at me through the bars of their cribs. And now there's a boy who should be in 11th grade, and a sullen boy in 8th grade, and an anxious girl in 5th grade. Yes, 5th grade. I ground myself. Tomorrow, we'll take this unwieldy investigation to the elementary school cafeteria and set it up between the tape on the long table, and some poor bastard will spend his Friday night looking at 200 trifold boards. We'll pause before our progeny, inspect the glossy photos, the moist noses of Ruby and Watson and Rosebud and Stranger Dog, evaluate our conclusions one final time, and for reasons none of us will ever understand, give our work first prize. <laughs> or the soul-crushing honorable mention. Four, results. The glue stick, too. Once working on the first project with the oldest boy, the boy whose calves my wife now rubs every night with barrier ointment, I tried to take charge of the glue stick. And within seconds, there was glue everywhere. My fingers stuck to every letter, every bit of evidence battered and torn with glue. The project so mangled, I was sent in the middle of the night to the 24-hour Walmart, where other desperate parents stood in front of trifold boards. No more white left, no red, no sunny yellow, only black. Other parents, losers with dead eyes and capable spouses at home, gazed despondently alongside. It's always the dud parent, the one proven useful only for the retrieval of goods, who gets sent on these middle-of-the-night missions. When I return home with the black trifold poster board, her eyes dimmed. Seriously, she asked. Was it at least funny later with a little perspective? Not so much. I have never since touched the ruler or the scissors or the glue stick. And for the best evidence of our collaborations, the children sleeping upstairs, three incomplete projects, no longer ours to finish. The teamwork now is a weary march and feels mostly for show. I am the retriever of goods, and she puts the goods to use. I bring home the barrier ointment, and she applies it. I stop at the medical supply store for the catheter bags, and she attaches them. Sometimes as she works with him, on him, his eyes land on me. And I want to say, you can't tell right now but I am part of this effort. I feel like we hardly know each other anymore, my wife and I. 
It is not that we are strangers, but rather that our whole life, our marriage, this family, this house, this kitchen, zoomed in like we are, is a close-up of almost unimaginable proportions. At this distance, it's hard to identify anything with any kind of certainty. But seeing her brandishing that glue stick, the smooth application, the cementing of information, the bonding of the evidence, this familiar endeavor, for a moment makes who we are a tiny bit less blurry. Five. Conclusion. It looks good, I say. Lips pressed together, my wife looks up from the conclusion. She has placed it beautifully inside her nearly invisible lines, dead center. Can you identify a dog by its nose print? If a dog who resembles your long lost dog comes to your door starving, skin and bones, its fur matted, ears crusty, dirt caked between the pads of its paws. Would you know him? If you take his chin in your hand, tilt up his head, get a good look at his nose, the grooves, the teardrop nostrils, is there enough to go on? Can you say with certainty, yes, yes, I recognize you. Thank you. That was The Project by Susan Parabo, read by Michael Shannon. We caught up with Shannon backstage at Symphony Space to talk about how he prepared for his performance of the story. First, I just read it silently a few times, and then I started saying it out loud. And I started thinking about if there were any experiences from my own life that paralleled the story that I could relate to, and creating, you know, the images in my head that are so beautifully illustrated by the author's words. Shannon, who has read for shorts before, searches for meaning in the story, but he says it's the presence of the audience that helps it come alive. There's a lot of musicality to it, and in a way it's very improvisational. It's not like I figure out how I'm going to say something before I go on stage. I just kind of get swept up in the moment. The audience supplies uh, a certain amount of inspiration themselves. You can kind of feel it in the room, whether the story's coming to life or not, whether it's registering with people. So I, I feel like I got lucky tonight. I think it's such a great story. I think you'd really have to go out of your way to mess it up. That was actor Michael Shannon. I vaguely recall one of my own kids having to make a battery out of a potato. It was the night before the science fair, and we were all as agitated as Elizabeth Holmes at Theranos because, like her invention, ours wasn't working either. I tried to figure out if it was ethical for me, a parent, to cut a hole in my child's potato and secretly bury two double A's inside. Luckily, I decided it was not. And also luckily, I did not wind up being tried and found guilty of wire fraud or potato fraud. When we return, 
a bakery truck delivers donuts and hope to kids in Southern California. I'm Meg Wallitzer. You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. Welcome back. This is Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. I'm Meg Wallitzer. In this show, we hear the first stories from Selected Shorts' first ever anthology, Small Odysseys. In case you've just tuned in, you missed a great one about a helpless husband delivered with dramatic precision by the actor Michael Shannon. Catching up is easy. If you head to SelectedShorts.org and click the subscribe button, you'll find a link to your favorite podcasting platform. While you're there, please let us know what you think of the stories in Small Odysseys and which writers you'd like to see in our next anthology. The next piece we'll hear is by the writer Luis Alberto Urea. He's a prolific writer with a great short story collection, The Water Museum, and novels including Into the Beautiful North. This story, inspired by elements of Urea's own childhood, is about a father who carves out his own little kingdom in the barrios of San Diego after his wife is forced to return to Mexico. This story has so many things going on at once. It's a deeply appealing and energetic childhood reminiscence, and it's about loss. I don't think I'm giving too much away if I also say there are pastries in it. Reading it is Javier Munoz, who has starred in Hamilton and In the Heights on Broadway. Now here's King of Bread by Luis Alberto Urea. The King of Bread. Papa reached back to grab me in the back seat when that car ran the red light on Wabash and plowed into us. We spun out on two wheels and slammed into a street sign. The old man steered with his left hand and held me with his right as I lifted off. For a moment, I was flying. Man, that car was his pride. It was a 49 Ford, an anvil of a machine. We stood in the road and watched as it died. Steam flying high, car blood spilling onto the blacktop. The woman who hit us stood like a statue of a woman with glass in her hair calling, I never saw you. I never saw you. It was the only time I ever saw him cry, even when Mama left us. The crash was especially hard on him because he was between jobs. How was he supposed to go out and find a new one now or buy a new car, even a junker, which is how we'd gotten a 49 Ford to begin with? 
You'd never know he was down on his luck unless you watched his moods, which he kept hid like the nudie magazines under his mattress. I define his demeanor as jolly rage. But that was no different from all the men I saw around me in the barrio. It was a scramble for everybody. He had lost his job at the tuna cannery, and he was going to try for a job at the bowling alley in Chula Vista when the car died. So, rage hung like a haze in our apartment as his money ran out. It was just the two of us in the apartment. He got madder the more he had to clean it, to wash dishes, to make me do homework. My things he found tossed around were a personal insult to him. You know, it took me a while to learn to do the chores. What did I know? I liked him being home when I didn't hate it. I was happy he didn't come home stinking of fish anymore. I missed that Ford too. But I could walk to school at St. Jude's by myself now. So I didn't need rides or anybody with me. Besides, if some of the crazy patos or bloods from down the street punched me, Pa would expect me to fight back. With this way, I could just run. He'd never know. In those days, his advice was simple. If they hit you, beat them till they're in the dirt. And when they're down, kick them in the pinche head. I didn't think I could do that and live. They always got back up. His problem was that he couldn't survive without something to drive. He didn't walk down the street like some peasant, and he hated taking the bus. Un hombre don't take a bus, he said. I'd rather ride a burro. Pa was a driver for sure, a driver and a worker. It didn't take him long to get a job at the big bakery down near the dry docks. He showed me the want ad. Drivers needed, clean driving record required, bakery truck, must have selling skills, good with people, a must, apply in person. What's it mean, I asked. I don't know, mijito, but I get to drive a truck. He lit one of his Paul Malls. And I like bread. Me too. Pues, it's perfect then. He did that Mexican one-shoulder shrug while tipping his head thing, hung out his lower lip, closed his eyes, raised his eyebrows, as if he was acknowledging the mysteries of the universe and also suggesting that no one with any sense would turn down a shot at a job that included a truck. And bread. People who try to learn Spanish don't know that half of it is silent. They never seem quite right when they speak because they don't use their faces and hands and shoulders and lips enough. So, one day he came home with a two-tone 61 Chevy panel truck, black fenders, creamy body paint, and the bakery's logos on the sides. They also gave him a uniform and a snappy bread dude cap he wore like some bomber pilot in those old movies, all tipped down over his right eye. I get to keep it here, mijo he called as he turned into the dirt alley, our new troca. Of course, it seemed gigantic to me, and Pa looked about 20 feet tall in the driver's seat. Then he confided, as if it was a dirty secret, it's a loner. He squinched his nose a little like the admission had a bit of stink on it. You know what I was saying about Mexican Spanish? Well, he was showing the expression for his favorite old school word, stink which is fuchi. If you said it with enough verve, you couldn't help but make that monkey face. So if you made that monkey face, 
You really didn't have to say the word out loud at all. But all your paisanos would know exactly what you hadn't just said. The back of the truck had two doors that opened on wooden drawers he'd fill every morning at the bakery. Bread, donuts, cookies, maybe a pie or two. If the moms on his route ordered one in advance, he could bring them a birthday cake. There were paper bags and wax paper sheets back there for picking up the stuff and handing it over. Ba wore a silver changemaker on his belt with tubes full of pennies, dimes, nickels, and quarters, and he'd work a toggle to count them out. He had a zipper pouch for dollar bills, but the ladies on his route didn't often have paper money. Some wrote checks. Some had welfare cheats. Ba actually took IOUs from many moms, which was to be his downfall. If the bakery really wanted to make money, he liked to say, they should have loaded the trucks with tortillas and pan dulce. Conchas, he said, and those gingerbread pig cookies nobody really liked but ate because grandma dunked them in coffee. When I buy this troca, he said, I'm going to paint our names on the door, Garcia y Garcia. I'll leave it to you so you will have a business. Even in fourth grade, I didn't want to drive a bread truck. I wanted to turn blonde and be Steve McQueen. <laughs> me and you, mijo, it's just me and you. <laughs> We'd been alone since Mama left us. It happened when I got the chicken pops. That's what all of us kids called it. We thought it was because you had these red things pop out all over. Made sense to us. We were always decoding the stuff everybody said. I feel guilty about it to this day. Mama, like, I could have not caught it. I could have not touched whoever was sick playing Foursquare on the blacktop playground. I mean, most of the homies got the pops, though. It was going through the school like a flood. Ma kept me home when it turned all polka dot. Pa did not approve of any of that in any way. Un hombre, you know, doesn't stay in bed. He don't be sick. Hey, I didn't mind. I had my mad magazines and my Batman comics. Ma let me eat strawberry ice cream as if I had the tonsils, even though Pa yelled a lot about me getting fat. I got to stay in the sack as long as I wanted. I could watch game shows and Mike Douglas on our TV. That sounded great to me. But nobody told me how the little red pops would itch and break when you scratched them, so it wasn't that much fun after all. Ma's usual cure for all ills, vapor rub, didn't work on my pops. So she went out, walked down the long block to the corner store to get baking soda or something. She was going to soak me in it. But the immigration guys got her. You think this is a modern thing, a make America great again thing, but they were hunting what they called wetbacks the whole time. I wanted to tell somebody she was my mother and she didn't have a wet back. I didn't even know what a wet back meant. Was it a woman thing? Were these men searching for all women with leaky backs or just Mexican mothers? Was it me? Had I made her back wet by being born? I was pretty sure it was that, because Ba's back was dry, and my back was dry. 
And I didn't know anything about papers. I would have thought they were something like dog tags. You know, the dog catchers came to the apartments and dragged away skinny dogs. I hated those days. My mama was not a dog. Did she get put in a big truck like, like by mama catchers? Locked in steel cages with other wet women? All I knew for sure was that something terrible must have happened and it was my fault. I was still in bed, terrified when Pa came home. I was afraid he'd be mad at me for losing her. I was afraid somebody from the scary end of the block got her. I hid there under my blankets all afternoon, hoping she was just delayed, just talking to a neighbor, maybe in church saying a prayer so I'd get better. But I knew that nothing would keep my mother from me. And I'd been crying. All of us in that barrio lived in fear of something bad. This unnamed thing that happened to some Mexicans. This force that snatched families off the block, that took homies out of the fourth grade and made the nuns never mention them again. I thought it was something like the monsters on Mona Lisa's science fiction show on Saturdays. Something like the giant crab monsters that pinched off people's heads and ate them and then could think and talk like humans. I thought the monsters were eating my mother to learn Spanish so they could hypnotize us into coming outside so they could feed again. I promise you, there are kids today that think something like that. They're thinking it tonight. Only they're thinking something even worse is happening to their moms in the dark because the world has become what it is. Pa had that fish stink on him when he stormed in, and he was yelling. He was throwing things around as if Ma might be hiding behind the old couch. He grabbed me up by the collar of my pajamas and ordered me to stop crying. He kicked open the back door, and I heard him running down the street, calling her name, and I cried harder because I thought he would be eaten too. And I would be left forever in that apartment, waiting for the monsters to come for me, calling my name in my parents' voices. But nothing happened at all. It was all silence after that week. Life went on. Ma was back home in Mexico. I did not know this place home or Mexico. I thought National Avenue was home. And Pa went back to work. He bought me a turtle at Woolworths. La Becari Troca was salvation. Consignment is what they called the deal they made with Pa. The deal the bakery made with all their drivers. Neither one of us knew exactly what it was, but Papa learned things quick. That was the secret to life in the U.S. Understanding the rules and the meanings as fast as you can because you're always behind the ball. Playing catch-up. And if they catch you, you get thrown out. Like Ma. Behind the ball, though. What was that? Like wetback or medium rare or crew cut. What were those things? I mean, signals came at me as if sent by spaceships from another world. I spent my boyhood needing a Dakota ring. So Pa went to his bank and took out some of the cannery money he'd stashed away and bought the stuff to fill his truck's drawers. 
the bakery sold it to him at a fair rate, cheaper than it would have been in stores. And they had a chart of prices he could charge, which were a little more than the store. They paid him an added minimum fee for his hours behind the wheel, though fuel was on him, and he could work as many hours as he needed, but after a full eight hours, his salary ended, and the rest was all on the profit margin from the drawers. Now, he was supposed to maintain a bargain drawer for day-olds, but like many drivers, he sometimes kept things that could still pass as fresh in his main drawers. I mean, 30, 40 extra cents per order at every stop could add up after a good week. He inherited the route from a guy who died of Irish whiskey, Pa said. Pa himself never drank after the mama catchers took her, aside from his small glass of Thunderbird every night. He had learned pretty quick that nobody was going to run into the street to buy muffins after dark, not in our neighborhood anyway. So he always came home in time for Cronkite. Mrs. Scotta, the babysitter, went back across the alley to her house. Pa paid her in bread and cookies. He and I ate TV dinners and watched the news. And he had his one drink and a bowl of fritos and cashews. It was kind of what we did in place of church. And every week, he sent an envelope to Mama back home. I read somewhere that all, all fathers are mysteries to their children until they die, and then become greater mysteries because they can never then be solved. You just wonder forever. I think kids fear their fathers. I didn't dare make mine angry, not because he'd hurt me, but because he'd leave. He got only one letter from Ma in the year after she left. I mean, one letter I knew of. He never talked about it. But that night, he stayed out till morning. I was afraid he'd gone to that home place to be with her again. Once, when the phone rang, I grabbed it. All I could hear were crackles. There seemed to be a distant voice, a, a small voice I couldn't really hear. Mama, I cried. Mama, Mama. The little crackling voice talked on and on, and then the line went dead. So, I made it my job to be the best no-crying son I could. Ba went to work every morning, and so did I. I was a bad student, but I never missed class. The kids laughed at me because my dad was the donut guy in the stupid truck, and I, I was embarrassed by him all of a sudden. I resolved to be useful and uncomplaining. I never asked again for a comic or a toy. I crept out of my room as silently as possible on Saturdays to sit too close to the almost silent TV and watch Bugs and Daffy and the Stooges as Pa's snores rattled the walls. I had a plan to get a paper route when I was older. Maybe old enough so the bad dudes down the block wouldn't hit me. Earn some extra money for Pa. But I'd need a bike. I was trying to figure that part out. I even helped him with his work. For example, our unit was at the end of the apartment block, one of four, on the bottom floor of the dirt alley that snaked downhill from National. The garage was around the corner, down by Reverend Jones's wild backyard. It stood empty since the Ford was murdered, so Pa put his bread truck in there every night. It was his Fort Knox of donuts. He'd call me every afternoon from a payphone around five. Ready, mijo, he'd say. See, si, Pa, 
Meet me outside in half an hour. <laughs> I'd be standing outside our back door. It was a great place. The sun hit it in the afternoon, and when it rained, the old wood porch was like my boat as the alley turned to a muddy river. I'd never been in a boat. So anyway, I'd stand there and wait, and I'd hear him before I saw him. If you were around town in those days, you will remember the bread truck's whistle. It was as cool as the ice cream man's jingly music, how the bread trucks had the train whistle on the roof. Pa would pull his lanyard twice as the bakery signal. Whoop, whoop, everybody would come running. He'd pull up in his cloud of cigarette smoke, and I'd step up on the running board. He'd hang his arm out and wrap it around me, pull me tight to the warm metal of the door. The smell of all those bakery goods came out with the smoke. His arm seemed impossible, huge, muscle carved of wood, and it was covered in wiry hairs. His bones could have been stone. And he'd roll down the alley slow as a snail, idling, really. But I hooted and hollered as if we were speeding around a racetrack. He'd swing it around the corner, and I'd jump off with the key to the padlock in my hand. I'd unlock it and yank up the garage door, and Pa would drive in saying, that's my boy, all right. Or even better, míralo. That one word, Mexican exhortation to just take a look at this kid. Isn't he amazing? <laughs> My secret knowledge of his great mystery was simple. He wasn't as tough as he needed the world to think he was. I knew that inside the brutally efficient driver's cab, there was a spider web under the dash right beside the long ratchet of the pool brake. He would never let me bother that spider in his customized English, he called it El Espider. It was his mascot, he said. It brought him luck. He talked to it as he drove around all day. It never occurred to me that he might be lonely. And he never missed the ritual we had created, no matter how beat he was, and he was beat all right. Some days he was gray. He was a hundred years old. His back hurt. I knew he wore some kind of girdle thing to hold it together. He wore copper magnet bracelets because the healer ladies in the barrio told him they pulled bad vibrations out of his body. He sat on a woven mat with springs in it. He ate tums like candies. He smelled like sweat and yeast. But he limped to the back of the truck and swung open the doors and pulled out the bottom goodie drawer and said, I wonder if I have any spare stuff I can offer you, mijo. I was all about the donuts. Glazed donuts are the best donuts, he'd say. The gringos invented them. Chocolate. Chocolates for girls. Men eat glazed. You told me Aztecs invented chocolate. Yeah but you got to cut out some cabron's heart to eat Aztec donuts. Dad, he'd take up his wax square paper and pick one chocolate and one glazed. Dinner first, he always said, but most days we ate them before we got through the back door. It was the year after they took Ma that I broke. It was all the way into fifth grade I had a two-way crush on redhead Marlene and her friend Roxanne. 
I wanted to be Captain Kirk that year. Some of the boys that used to beat me up now had a baseball game going behind the school. We played in a dirt lot. We used broomsticks for bats, and an old mummy of a dead cat was home base. But I missed my mom so hard, it gave me headaches and a sore throat that didn't feel like a cold, but like I got punched there. I cried into my pillow at night and imagined Marlene would beam me up and take me on an adventure on a strange planet, probably Pegasus. I was pretty sure Pegasus lived there. On the anniversary of her taking, I couldn't go to school. I didn't care if he punished me. I couldn't even take off my pajamas. I was staring at my frosted flakes in that nasty little kitchen when he walked in and stopped dead to stare. He was wearing slacks. Bah, first thing, and he had slacks on. He never owned a pair of shorts or jeans. Cuffed slacks and a sleeveless t-shirt and slippers because un hombre never went barefoot. We had that Woolworth's turtle in a plastic bowl that had a little ramp and a plastic palm tree. The turtle was staring at us with great distrust. What are you doing here? He said. Today was the day. There was a pause. Pa must my hair. I know. I didn't say anything. You okay there, champ? I'm good. You don't look good. I'm all right. Oye, cabrón, I know you. It's okay to feel bad. Do you feel bad? He smacked me on the back of the head. I never feel bad. I looked up. Hair pomade made his grain crew cut stick up like a porcupine was sitting on a scalp. He lit a smoke and coughed and adjusted his magical copper bracelet and boiled water in a pan for some of his instant café combate. Well, he said. I hung my head. I miss her, I said. I didn't want to say so. I didn't want to show him how weak I was, but worse, I didn't want to say something that made him show how weak he was. His spoon in his cup made a meditative think-a-think-a-think-a sound as he stirred in his instant. Yeah, he said, and walked out of the kitchen. I thought that was it. I heard him in his room slamming drawers. I heard the shower run. The turtle pulled his head into his shell and refused to look at me. I rinsed out my bowl and stuck it in the drainer and stood at the kitchen window staring at the alley like Ma would show up. And I kept thinking that I wanted to tell Marlene and Roxanne all about it. And that thought made me feel sadder. And when Pa came back into the kitchen, he was all dressed up in his bread truck uniform. He was even wearing his black ripple sole work shoes. I knew he hated them. They hurt his feet and turned them paper white, made his toes peel. You ready? He said. Ready for what, Papa? Work, mijo. We going to work. For reals? Stop talking like a pachuco, he said. You can't just stay home from school and watch TV all day. I need you on the truck. I'm going to need you to pull the string for the train whistles today. He winked 
and opened the back door. I didn't know the world was so big. It had pretty much been the walk to and from school, the alley, some car trips to stores like Kresge's Down National, which we had been going to that day, you know, when the Ford got smashed. Ma, who did take the bus, took me to the zoo one time. Took me to downtown, where we walked all day looking at the boats down on the harbor. And one, one time, Pa took me to a bowling alley, and we went to the big sky drive-in when we had the car. He liked cowboy movies. But today, Pa was some kind of astronaut in his spider truck roaming in and out of neighborhoods I had never seen and never dared imagine. We rolled down to National City and into Tula Vista, into Pinoy Town and all the way out to Lemon Grove. He had an AM radio in there and it was all Phil Rizzuto yapping about sports and the old redhead, Arthur Godfrey, mumbling with people about things I didn't care about. There was no way Pa was going to tune it to KCBQ because he was never going to allow the Beatles in his troca. Los Beatles, he called them in his transitional Spanglish. What kind of men, he'd mutter if their songs ever came on the radio. What kind of men? I stared out the window at apartments sadder than ours and little pale houses with hedges and humpbacked cars and bikes. I was counting bikes. Sit on the dollar pouch so nobody steals it, he said. Our first stop was in a block of run-down apartments with couches on the dead lawns and a dead car with its trunk open left abandoned at the curb. Pa leaned away from the wheel as he braked. Pull, he said. I leaned across the barrel of his chest and grabbed the dangling lanyard. Two tugs, just two. I did it. We were a cartoon choo-choo for one moment. Woot, woot. He set the parking brake and turned off the engine and said, hang on to my dollars. He hopped out. I got out on my side and found little kids already at the back doors and moms hurrying out of their apartments in shorts and flip-flops and everybody yelling, Donut Man and Mr. Garcia. And Pa stood there and nodded at them all. He was the king of bread. And his subjects loved him. It almost knocked me out my shoes. Block after block, we sounded our whistle, and mothers and grandmothers came out. Some ran, children everywhere, and they touched my father. I saw the hands. Women touched him carefully as if he might evaporate if they grabbed too hard. And children roughed him up, tugging at him, leaned on his hips and craned to see in the sweet drawers and yelled, Give me a donut, mister. Give me a cookie. I want some pie. Brown kids and black kids and white kids all together like we weren't supposed to stay on our own blocks. And Pa, this unknown being, this regal creature, laughing and nodding as women made confessions and pointed and often only paid him 50 cents or a few dimes for a loaf or, or a cake. And some of them gave him scrawled notes of promise that he handed me for the dollar bag. And I saw the phone numbers. Those women had special smiles for him. And he tipped his cap to them as if they were ladies of the royal court. By the end of the day, I was exhausted. 
He whistled along to a Burt Camfort song on his radio. I hated Burt Camfort. I didn't know how I felt about my dad because I didn't know my dad was this particular dad. He would never be that old dad again. You did good today, mijo. Thanks, Pa. Did you like it? Yeah. You worked hard, like un hombre. He pointed to the zipped up dollar bag. Take out 10 bucks. What? A man gets paid for his work. Beam me up, Marlene. What can I spend it on? He did the shrug, both shoulders this time. He didn't close his eyes because he was driving, but he hung out his lip and tipped his head. Up to you, big man, he said. We got to the alley and he let me out to unlock the garage. Chocolate or glaze, he said when he parked. Chocolate. He opened the back door and got out too. That's a good idea. I like them too, mijo. As we walked up the alley to our back door, he put his hand on my shoulder. It's gonna be okay, he said. Todo bueno. He got out his key and unlocked the door and stopped me before I went in. Tomorrow, he said, I call you in sick. I think we need to go to the zoo. I never been. I know your mama took you there one time, yeah? I don't want to get lost. Will you show me the way? And we closed the door and locked it and put two turkey and gravy dinners in the oven. And he gave me a sip of his Thunderbird. <laughs> All those IOUs, most of them could never be paid. It would force him out of business in a year. He'd finally get to that bowling alley he wanted to work at, cleaning toilets. I watched him fall asleep in his chair. And I took the lit cigarette out from between his fingers and sat at his feet, hoping our phone would ring just one more time. That was King of Bread by Luis Alberto Urea, performed by Javier Munoz. The idea of a truck going through the neighborhood selling bread and pastries is just irresistible in this story and in life. When I was a kid, I'd hear the jingling bell of the ice cream truck and go running. But sometimes it would turn out to be the knife sharpener truck, which felt like such a betrayal. The knife sharpener truck is the ice cream truck for adults, which doesn't say much to recommend adulthood. One of the wonderful things about that mesmerizing reading is the sense of joy and hope and community that Javier Munoz found in what might otherwise be a pretty sad story. After his reading, Munoz told us how this story hit home. When the story was sent to me, I read it out loud and I had tears in my eyes by the end because I just think it's so beautiful. It's written so beautifully, but it's just so sentimental. And the relationship between the father and son, I mean, you can just touch it on the page. And so I, I was really excited <laughs> to, to be able to come and present this body of work and, and his writing and, and 
And I wanted to do it justice and honor it because I really think it's so, so gorgeous. Munoz also shared how he prepared Urea's story for his first ever Selected Shorts performance. I literally decided that the only way to prepare for this was to read it out loud every time. And so I would carve out about 30 to 40 minutes to sit at my table and read through it like one long monologue. But remember that I was really telling a story, that this wasn't, you know, a moment in a, in a play or a musical where I'm having a conversation with some kind of character, you know, that it was going to be storytelling. So I just kind of let the actor mode come in and imagine, you know, like campfire story time and, <laughs> you know, and, and just rehearsed it in that way and kept finding these beats and these moments and pacing throughout the story that is literally written in. It's, it's meant, I mean, I feel like it's almost meant to be performed how he's written it. This is such a, a, a lovely unique experience with the audience. It's a different kind of conversation to have with them that is unlike regular theater. That was Javier Munoz backstage at Symphony Space. If you like the stories you heard today, you might want to pick up a copy of Small Odysseys. These two stories, in addition to 33 others, are there waiting for you. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our literary team is Matthew Love, Drew Richardson, and Vivienne Woodward. Our director of marketing is Mary Shimkin. Our radio producers are Sarah Montague and Jenny Falcon. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our mix engineer for this episode was Dennis Jacobson. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation, creator of the Ray Award for the short story. Support is also provided by the NYC19 Response and Impact Fund in the New York Community Trust, the Howard Gilman Foundation, the Schubert Foundation, the Sharina Endowment Fund, the Blanchette Hooker Rockefeller Fund, the Achelis and Bodman Foundation, the Henry Nias Foundation, the Fan Fox and Leslie R. Samuels Foundation, the Michael Tuck Foundation, the Vida Foundation, the Axe Houghton Foundation, the Lemberg Foundation, and the Grodzins Fund. Selected Shorts is made possible by the National Endowment for the Arts and with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of Governor Kathy Hochul and the New York State Legislature. Additional support is provided by the Isaiah Sheffer Fund for new initiatives. Symphony Space thanks our generous supporters, including our board of directors, producer circle, and members who make our programs possible with their annual support. Selected Shorts is produced and distributed by Symphony Space. Mm-hmm.